Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, founder and CEO of Analytics Vidya and your host for this show. In this episode, we will talk to Dr. Jeanette Wing. Dr. Wing is currently Avnation's Director of Data Science Institute and Professor of Computer Science at Columbia University. She brings a unique blend of experience in academia, industry and government. And prior to becoming the director of Data Science Institute, Dr. Wing was overseeing Microsoft research labs across the globe. We talked to her about her journey, use of formal methods in data science, and her advice to our community members. Thanks a lot for uh, taking time out uh, for this uh, discussion. and sure. i'm looking forward to the discussion just wanted to tell you a bit about analytics with the in case you don't know or in case you haven't heard so uh, you know analytics with there is a community of analytics and data science professionals i started this community back in 2013 uh, as a blog actually and then it started taking its own life it, its own kind of shape so people started following the blog which i was writing people started coming back and asking questions uh, Uh, to the point where i could see a much bigger impact coming from analytics with that then at my day to day role at that time so uh, now it has been 4 year more than 4 years i have been doing this full time and the idea is to create a platform where people in analytics and data science can come and do discussions about their work any problems they are facing they can learn from other professionals in the industry they can get exposure to thought leaders and the latest research which is happening along with that we also conduct various hackathons provide community with various job opportunities which we come across so that's briefly what uh, we do at analytics with there and we we get about uh, uh, 2 million visits month on month on the portal and uh, we try and help people with their career and knowledge needs thank you yes thank you for that background how many people did you say you reach uh, so we get uh, more than 2 million visits month on month that's great So uh professor wing uh, uh can you tell a bit about uh, yourself how did you get started uh, in computer science specifically and then uh, you know in data science can you tell a bit about yourself sure i uh, was always interested in engineering mm-hmm. when i was a little girl actually was i loved mathematics and um i remember asking my father uh when i was in high school what is engineering Mm-hmm. and he said engineering is the application of mathematics to solve real world problems mm-hmm. and i loved that answer and i decided at that on the spot that i wanted to be an engineer right. uh, so then i went to school at MIT and mm-hmm. i started majoring in electrical engineering mm-hmm. um but as an electrical engineering major one is required to take uh, uh some computer science courses mm-hmm. so in the uh, when i was taking the first required computer science course i was exposed to some ideas i had never seen before and i um i was very impressed and blown away by them and i wanted to study more of those kinds of ideas that that's when i decided i would switch majors from electrical engineering to computer science mm-hmm. and i never looked back um mm-hmm. i've been a computer scientist uh, ever since basically i was a sophomore in in uh, college Mhm. And um 
from MIT, I went to uh, went on for all my degrees at MIT, and then I went to the University of Southern California mm-hmm. for two years on the faculty, and then from there I went to Carnegie Mellon University, and mm-hmm. I basically grew up professionally at Carnegie Mellon University from 1985 um, all the way through um, when I left for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. While I was at Carnegie Mellon University, I was department head twice uh, mm-hmm. for the computer science department. Mm-hmm. And in between my stints as department head at Carnegie Mellon University, I went to the National Science Foundation. Uh, the National Science Foundation is a funding agency in the United States yeah. that funds yeah. basic research in science and engineering. And when I was at NSF, I was in charge of the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate, which basically funds um, most academic computer science research in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, very much enjoyed being uh, in that position. Um, I got to see not just computer science research, but research in all science and engineering disciplines. Um, and to have a national platform uh, from which I could uh, set the research agenda, help set the research agenda uh, for computing and for science and engineering in the United States. After, while I was the uh, department head at Carnegie Mellon, in computer science my second time, um, I was courted to go to Microsoft to run the research labs. Uh, and so in 2013, I uh, went to Microsoft and uh, within a year I was uh, put in charge of all the basic research labs at Microsoft. So these labs included the one in Redmond, the one at the time in Silicon Valley, the one in New York City, the one in New England, the one in Cambridge, England, uh, Bangalore, and Beijing. So I had a pretty uh, important role at Microsoft. I was corporate vice president of Microsoft Research, um, setting the direction uh, of research for the company. Last year, I joined Columbia University to lead the data science efforts uh, at Columbia. I'm in charge of the, I'm, in, I'm the director of the Data Science Institute here at mm-hmm. Columbia. It is a university-wide institute and a university-level institute. So I report directly to the president of the university, mm-hmm. um, and that shows the commitment to data science by the university. Basically, start uh, from your uh, initial college days and then we, uh, I'll want to basically go into each of these roles and talk about a bit about your work in each of these. Starting from your uh, college days, so your PhD uh, was in computer science from MIT, uh, right? So that was uh, uh, on the subject of two-tiered uh, approach to specifying problems, if I'm right. Is that correct? That's correct. A two-tiered approach to specifying programs. Sure. So can you tell a bit about that? What what problem were you trying to solve? And then, uh, uh, you know, what was the approach which came out as, as part of your work? The, the big problem that is still outstanding in the software engineering community um, is how do you write programs that do the right thing? And how do you prove that the programs are doing the right thing? This is a general area of program correctness and program verification. Mm -hmm. Um, But before you even get to uh, trying to prove a program is correct or or verify a program, you need to specify what correctness means. 
So my thesis was inventing languages to specify the intent of what a program or a software system more generally is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, this is an area called formal specification and formal verification, often lumped together under the term formal methods. So mm -hmm. my thesis was on inventing specification languages that would help people specify very formally what the intent of a program's behavior is supposed to be so that one can actually prove formally that a program satisfies its specification. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, uh, so if uh, we were working in this regime, it would essentially mean that the testing happens uh, at that, uh, or the specification for testing happens at the time of uh, writing the program itself, and then that gets specified. Well, it's interesting um, that you use the word testing because. Uh, Often the verification community and the, the testing communities are, if you will, at odds with each other. One okay. <laughs> is able to verify the program is correct, mm -hmm. then in principle, you don't need to test it. Now, of mm -hmm. course, in reality, um, we can never formally prove a program correct with respect to all properties of interest. Mm -hmm. And we would all, always want to validate the program's behavior in all methods uh, that makes sense and that are uh, reasonable in terms of resource efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the goals of formal methods is to uh, obviate the need for uh, program testing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that, and I think um, another important value for formal methods is that just the process of formalizing the and what you intend the program to do can clarify your own thinking about what the system's behavior uh, should be. Mm -hmm. uh, very often, one is debugging the specification yeah. uh, rather than necessarily debugging the program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Correct, correct, and uh, so uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why you would need a different language for this uh, rather than uh, you know using your. Actually, that's a very another good point. <laughs> One could argue that you could write the specification in the same programming language. We in formal methods typically like to uh, argue that writing a specification in a higher level language um, in a, a language based on some kind of logic that's not necessarily executable, uh, first of all, gives you uh, a freedom of expression that you would not have if you were writing it in a programming language. Mm -hmm. A second is uh, declarative. So it, it forces you to think abstractly as to what the program should do, not how the program should accomplish the task. Mm -hmm. And uh, thirdly, it brings in uh, the, uh, one can bring in as much mathematical logic and sophistication as needed, not just to express the intent of the program, but also to, to prove the property. So many of the um, more sophisticated specification languages are actually based on higher order logics mm -hmm. where you can um, reason in terms of a much more um, sophisticated mathematics than 
uh, the kind of logic that underlies most programming languages. Very interesting. And uh, is there a resource which you can tell if if I have to read more about uh, formal specifications and languages? It it sounds interesting, and I've I've never heard about this before before this discussion. Well, let me uh, say that this uh, field of formal methods has been around for decades, mm-hmm. and we have made tremendous progress in formal verification and program correctness um, to the point where now these techniques have uh, been embodied in tools that scale and are used for hardware verification and even software verification by industry. So um, I would go back to some of the early papers on formal methods to get a sense of what uh, the the early um, background is, but there are now books on uh, very specific methods like model checking or SAT solving um, mm-hmm. that that you can you can get. Um, one of the early papers that I wrote is a survey paper on formal methods. It was dated around 1999, mm-hmm. and it, I can tell you that at the time it was a very uh, up to date paper. But right now it's out of date. It doesn't mm-hmm. even include some of the more modern methods. But that gives you a sense of what it means to prove a program correct. Uh, You really need three things. You need uh, a property or a specification that you're interested in improving. Mm -hmm. You need the program. And then you need a logic that allows you to formally show that the program satisfies the specification. Mm -hmm. So those three things are all expressed mathematically. Mm -hmm. And once everything is expressed mathematically, then you can do the proof mathematically and also you can automate the proof process. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the verification technology, the tools that come to play, made a lot of progress in. And so, as I mentioned, there are companies now, hardware companies, software companies, that routinely use some of these methods, some of these specification languages and uh, to prove properties correct of the systems that they build. Um, I want to say that this is going to be a more more and more important problem for the future for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One is the the scale of the systems that we're building continues to grow, both in size and complexity, Mm -hmm. and to the point where it's not possible for a human being to keep in his or her head uh, the full functionality and also other external constraints in, in building and designing the system. You need tool support. Mm-hmm. The second reason is that the kinds of systems that we are building um, more and more will be affecting uh, individual uh, lives. So when we talk about self-driving cars, a lot of the uh, the control systems that are going to be controlling those self-driving cars are written in software yeah. um, and and interact with hardware devices like the con- the device controllers. Mm-hmm. And these systems need to be correct because if they're not correct, they can kill people. For these two reasons, I think the whole area of formal methods, program specification, program verification will become increasingly important for the software industry. Sure, sure. And just one last question on this. At times there, at least in the mathematics, there used to be a few things which you could not 
prove theoretically to be correct and you have to rely on some heuristical methods or other kind of methods rather than having a theoretical proof so uh, is this regime of uh, you know formal methods can it tackle all the problems or are there classes of problems where this fits in more naturally and are better to apply well there are theoretical results um that show that there are going to be some limitations um and these these limitations are due to you know they go all the way back to uh logic uh, uh limitations uh you know if if you think about uh the halting problem for instance in theoretical computer science yeah. um in general we can't solve the halting problem however yeah. specifically given a specific program we can for instance prove that it terminates um uh, if we can find what's called a termination function and so on so the general problem may not be solvable um however for a given instance of the problem it may be very interesting and it definitely looks like a area which is which doesn't get talked about at least in the data science world as much as it should be uh so so I'll definitely look into it more and then uh would want to if you let me I would like to actually uh, pick up on that comment mm-hmm. because although there has been decades of research done in computer science to formally show how one can prove a program is correct yeah. um this is all with respect to symbolic logic mathematical logic where there's true and false mm-hmm. um what has what data science is now bringing to fore is the complexity of proving uh properties correct with respect to inherently uh probabilistic and statistical methods that mm-hmm. produce models that spit out probabilities or um distributions and so on yeah. moreover in uh, a lot of the machine learning techniques many of the machine learning models are trained by data mm-hmm. and so i think these new kinds of techniques that data science is bringing to the table need to be revisited by the formal methods community um as really a challenge to the formal methods community to help the machine learning community figure out what it means to even verify a machine learn model or mm-hmm. to uh, prove any property of a machine learn model or a machine learning algorithm correct mm-hmm. i think these are all current research questions that the communities uh, if they c- come together um yeah. can can address and i think this is uh again very important because so many of our systems of tomorrow are going to have embedded in them uh, models that have been trained by uh, these machine learning algorithms correct if we could use some of the formal methods to prove the correctness we can probably adopt these machine learning algorithms in a better manner in some of the problems where we can't do them today for example in case of banking if you have to give out credit it's important that we have a good reason to either uh, accept or decline the credit that's right dear listener I am excited to announce the launch of Analytics with their Medium publication. With our Medium publication, we have opened the gates to anyone wanting to write for Analytics with them and share their work or their learnings with our community. So head over to medium.com/analytics-withya and start following our Medium publication.
for the writers in you you can submit your work to us and stand a chance to get your work featured in front of one of the largest data science community you gain the recognition as a subject matter expert and get personalized feedback from experienced editors uh, from analytics with them the publication can be found on medium.com/analytics-vidya so moving forward so then you uh, you've spent time in you know two of the uh, top notch universities carnegie mellon and and columbia so tell us a bit about you know your experience in these universities and what kind of work were you doing uh, at these universities carnegie mellon university is very strong um in computer science as hmm. perhaps everyone knows it's Yeah. Um, one of the number one ranked computer science uh, schools in the world, mm-hmm. um, and it really is. Computer science uh, has a great presence um, on campus. It's uh, generally strong in in engineering, and also it's very strong in the fine arts and drama. Uh, sort of right brain, left brain. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you know, to be a computer science at Carnegie Mellon is like being a kid in the candy store. There are really great experts in computer science all around you. Um, mm-hmm. You're really pushing state of the art in the field, um, and you have access to uh, brilliant students um, and and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, Columbia is more of a full fledged university in a way that Carnegie Mellon is not. Uh, it's a large university. It has uh, professional schools and disciplines that a full-fledged university can represent uh, that a smaller school at Carnegie Mellon University uh, does not have. So, for instance, we have a huge medical school. We have a journalism school, a law school, uh, a business school, a uh, social work school, and of all the arts and science departments represented. um all the engineering disciplines it's really that's what i mean by a full fledged university sure. mm-hmm. and for a field like data science um i think it's especially important to be in a university that um supports the interaction between data science and all other disciplines all other professions and all other sectors so mm-hmm. i feel like i'm a, a different kid in a different candy store um <laughs> where I have um this methodology data science that is of interest to everyone um on campus. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very much enjoying uh, talking to people who are not in science or not in engineering but who very much appreciate the uh, data science methods. Interesting. Interesting. And any specific uh, areas which you are focusing on as as part of uh, these discussions so any specific domains you are focusing on? Well, at Columbia University, I um for the Data Science Institute, I have put forth a a three-part mission statement. Uh the first is to advance state of the art in data science. Uh and this really speaks to basic research in the field. At Columbia, we uniquely draw on three areas of strength to define the foundations of data science: computer science, statistics, and operations research. Operations research is very strong at Columbia. We have a, a department in the engineering school and an operations research group in the business school. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uniquely, these three uh, disciplines are coming together to form the foundations of data science at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. The second part of my mission statement is transform all fields, professions, and sectors through the application of data science. 
And here I, again, speak to what I was saying before, it's possible um, for some, uh, this mission to be accomplished at a university like Columbia because we represent all disciplines, uh, professions and sectors through our professional schools and all of our disciplinary department. Mm -hmm. And what's been interesting to me is when I first joined Columbia last year, I thought I would have to go around and cajole everyone uh, into using data science in their research and education, but it's been just the opposite. Everyone is coming to me and mm -hmm. saying, I really have this interesting data set. I'd like to use data science methods to unlock the mysteries in this data set. Mm -hmm. And these, these people are coming to me from the law school, from the history department, uh, you know, from uh, School of Art and Architecture. So it's really, um, and of course, the medical center. So it's really been uh, uh, very refreshing to see the interest and enthusiasm in data science across the entire university. Great. The third part of my mission statement is to ensure the responsible use of data to benefit society. And mm -hmm. To benefit society means to address societal grand challenges like healthcare and energy and climate change and social justice. Mm -hmm. to, and this is something that I think faculty and students at a university like Columbia um, always aspire uh, to do to, to really solve a hard problems, mm -hmm. societally hard problems. Ensure the responsible use of data is an assertion that I made last year and that it's become quite timely given the current events, uh, the news that we hear about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and so on. And that is really to, uh, to make sure that we as data scientists use uh, data in a fair, ethical way. We preserve and respect the privacy of the individuals of, of the data that we collect and so on. So that ensure the responsible use of data, I think is very important. And it also appeals to the kind of student and faculty members who are attracted to a university like Columbia. Mm -hmm. And that's where the tagline data for good comes from. Yes, exactly. So I summarized this very uh, uh, long winded mission statement, if you will, into three words, mm -hmm. data for good. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. Great, great. And uh, uh, tell us a, a bit more about the research which is uh, happening right now. So since you've joined uh, uh, Columbia, what kind of projects have you uh, kind of led? Uh, and then what kind well, of... Well, my, my most recent research is actually related to the problem we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. As as I have a, a very strong background in formal methods, improving uh, programs correct with respect to a specification, mm -hmm. I am trying to work with the AI community, the machine learning community, to see what new methods and what new languages and not what new logics are needed to, first of all, specify the relevant properties that mm -hmm. these machine learned models being trained by certain data sets should have. This is a new verification problem. It's very exciting, um, and, but it's very needed if, again, you think about the systems of the future that are going to be reliant on AI um, using off-the-shelf machine learned models, for instance, to do computer vision, uh, you know, face recognition or object recognition. Um, and so the need for the verification of these systems 
is is important and critical and, and societally relevant, um, but the research still needs to be done. And that's the area that I call more, more generally trustworthy AI. So I'm interested in uh, trustworthy AI, AI systems that people can trust um, mm-hmm. because they have been, properties have been proven correct of them, um, mm-hmm. or they are not provable, then we can at least explain why not. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The other part of your uh, career, you know, where you, which you have spent in industry, so as you mentioned, you have worked with Microsoft and you were looking at the, uh, overlooking the research which were happening in various centers. So, so can you tell us a bit more about uh, what your role was and, and what kind of work was happening uh, in various labs which you oversaw? Yes. So I was corporate vice president of Microsoft Research. And in that role, I was overseeing a basic research labs around the world. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, there we had labs located, as I mentioned before, um, at the time I left Microsoft, we had labs in Redmond, um, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, New York City, Cambridge, England, uh, Bangalore, India, and then we have a lab in Beijing, China. I was not overseeing that. Um, I had been overseeing it uh, for a while. But in any case, um, these labs I mentioned really are promoting basic research, much like we do in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, the research that is done uh, looks ahead for the company as to where the problems are going to be so that when the problems come, the solutions will uh, be there. They also helped the company track talent in certain areas, for instance, AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and they helped the company um, help the, the company actually solve problems that the engineers might have um, and do it in a more general way than solving a point solution. Mm-hmm. So basic research in, in an in industry is a slightly different from doing basic research in academia. Yeah. Although Microsoft Research is well known for being the closest to being uh, to, for doing uh, basic research as in academia. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to mention uh, that one of the labs that I oversaw was the one in Bangalore, India. Yeah. Uh, Bangalore, India's lab was very well known for three uh, strengths. The first strength. Uh, is in theoretical computer science. It was really a, a, a not just known for at Microsoft Research, but in computer science in general, it is known for having ex- excellent theoretical computer science researchers, and the results are really fundamental uh, and foundational. And, and so Microsoft Research India was always viewed as a place that academics, in theory, in, in theoretical computer science, might want to spend a sabbatical just to be, just to hang around, hang out with these with these brilliant researchers in theoretical computer science. So that's one area of strength that Bangalore's lab has. Mm-hmm. The second area of strength is, uh, in some sense, uh, on the other extreme, and that is an area called technology for emerging markets. And mm-hmm. the, um, the there's an area of computer science called um, ICT, information and communication. I, I can't remember information communications um, development, but it's basically using technology to help emerging markets and developing markets like India. Sure. Um, and the uh, 
Technology for Emerging Markets Group in the Bangalore a Microsoft Research Lab was renowned. Um, in fact, one of the members of that lab uh, won a MacArthur Award. Um, that's how uh, prestigious and renowned the Technology for Emerging Markets Group in Bangalore, India, India's lab is. And again, anyone uh, around the world who wanted to do research in that area would vie to have some kind of visiting position or position in the Microsoft Research Bangalore lab. That's how strong that area is in that lab. Mm -hmm. And the third area of strength that the lab uh, brings uh, is more related to programming languages and, and software security. Uh, these uh, coming together uh, brought a lot of um, new ideas and great research results to help the company. For instance, uh, the Azure Cloud uh, be more secure. Uh, engineers write more secure, more reliable software. Um, there were some core members of the lab that were, again, world-renowned, very strong, um, and built a lot of tools and languages that helped the company. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, how much of this uh, effort at an overall level was, uh, uh, you know, uh, dedicated towards AI and ML versus, let's say, some of the other areas in computer science? Uh, that's a very good question. So Microsoft research in general um, has always uh, been very strong in AI and machine learning from the very days of when it was founded. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who founded Microsoft Research uh, was Rick Rashid, and he came from uh, the speech recognition uh, mm -hmm. research community. So he was uh, doing early days of AI, uh, and he also hired people who did computer vision. So mm -hmm. the very early days of Microsoft Research uh, in 1991, 92, were mm -hmm. already doing um, AI and from the early days. And, I, mm -hmm. and I, this continued on throughout the years. Mm -hmm. The Overall, there's a lot of strength in AI machine learning throughout Microsoft Research. Mm -hmm. um, it, it came to the point where the company uh, really needed a focused um, group of researchers on AI. And so another part of Microsoft Research was created called MSR AI, specifically uh, focused on advancing AI, but also helping the company um, bring AI uh, research results to the products and services that Microsoft produces, um, and also to bring bring more talent into the company. Microsoft as a company is definitely uh, promoting AI, much like all the other IT companies, and mm -hmm. Microsoft Research is playing a very important role towards doing that. Sure. And where is this MSR AI group based out of uh, current? It's primarily based out of Redmond, but it draws on strengths from Cambridge, England. Um, all It draws on strengths from all the labs, Cambridge, mm -hmm. England, New York City, Bangalore, and Beijing. Great. The and talent is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> True. Uh, and uh, you moved back from industry into academia uh, about a year back. So so what triggered that or what, why did you decide to move back to uh, academia? Well, I think one of the main reasons is, um, you know, I am an academic at heart. I really mm -hmm. believe in long-term basic research 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what I was seeing in industry is that, uh, especially in AI and the competitors that Microsoft has, that there was so much uh, need to move quickly on, for instance, getting AI into the products and services that Microsoft produces, that there was not, I wanted to make sure that we as a community, as an academic community, were solving the hard long-term problems, even in AI. So for instance, you know, we, uh, deep neural networks at the time were showing incredible applications in vision, speech recognition, natural language processing, and so on. But we still don't really know why DNNs actually are so successful and why they work. Mm-hmm. Um, we are only now beginning to look at DNNs in, under the guise of explainable AI and interpretable AI. And mm-hmm. so as an academic, as a scholar, as a scientist, uh, this, is, uh, this is a little troubling. One wants to understand why something works, mm-hmm. not just that it works. Mm-hmm. And only in academia can you study those kinds of problems. Only in academia, um, in fact, are, are you responsible for understanding the science something, you know, the mm-hmm. really trying to get at the fundamentals. Yeah. Um, and I think the other reason is, in the end, I care a lot about how our science, whether it's computer science or data science, I care a lot about addressing societal challenges. Um, I care a lot about all the kinds of problems I mentioned earlier, like healthcare, Mm -hmm. energy, climate change, social justice, all these societal grand challenges. And only in academia do you have the uh, freedom to explore Mm -hmm. how your techniques, your tools, your languages, your methods um, can be used for tackling these hard problems. In Mm -hmm. industry, you are very much focused on um, making sure the products and services that your company provides are high quality, that you have happy customers, uh, mm-hmm. and of course that the businesses are making money. So it's just a different value system and it's a different focus. Very much appreciated my years at Microsoft. I learned a lot about working for a corporation. I learned a lot about what it means to do research in an industrial setting, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really just an academic at heart. Sure, got it, got it. Are you excited about the possibilities of computer vision through deep learning? The application of computer vision range from understanding the environment in a self-driving car to building facial recognition systems for classrooms or manufacturing industries. Head over to trainings.analyticswithya.com and check out our course on computer vision using deep learning to start your journey today. And uh, touching that uh, uh, a bit further, or taking that a bit further, so, you know, you have almost spent uh, close to four decades in in computer science. How do you see, let's say, next five to 10 years, what are some of the areas which you think would uh, uh, gain more and more prominence uh, in, in the coming time, both from an academic perspective as well as from industry perspective? Yes, yeah, so I, you know, I have, uh, I have seen the the explosion of computer science as a field and the revolution that the technology has had on 
um, in, in many ways transforming how society behaves. It's really hard to predict where the technology is going. Mm-hmm. I do see if, if you follow certain trends that there are things to watch out for. First of all, I do think that AI is going to be much more um, pervasive in many of the systems, many of the sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, almost every company in every sector that I talk to, that I've talked to in the last year, recognizes the importance of data science, recognizes the importance of data, mm-hmm. um, and recognizes the importance of new disruptive technology changing these sectors in just the way they do things. Mm -hmm. So AI and big data and data science are definitely going to help uh, make these transformations in all these sectors. Mm -hmm. If I think about the uh, computing technology itself, I think I should be looking at novel substrates. I think we should be paying attention to quantum. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be paying attention to biological computing, where computers are made out of um, molecular material. Mm-hmm. Um, these are very far out, but mm-hmm. the potential of what they could do is mind-boggling. And then I think more you know, closer to the near term, um, there are, I mentioned uh, systems like self-driving cars, um, robots. Um, these are more generally called cyber physical systems. I think they're going to be more and more a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think some of the technical challenges I mentioned already, like proving their correctness, um, will be important for the research community to address. Sure, sure. Uh, And uh, one of the areas which I would want to uh, talk specifically about uh, from a future perspective is, you know, some of the work you mentioned on uh, social good and privacy and trust. So so can you uh, tell your perspective on how you see these things evolving in, let's say, next five years? That's a very good question. You know, first of all, I think that Everyone in computer science and certainly in data science are recognizing the importance of training the next generation of students to understand these questions of privacy and ethics from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's interesting to me being at Columbia when I talk to my colleagues in the journalism school, the law school, the medical school, Mm -hmm. um, and the business school, all of those professions Uh, routinely train their students um, with ethics Mm -hmm. in mind. And I think that's going to start to change in computer science and certainly in data science. In data science, it's new enough that we can start inculcating uh, the importance of ethics uh, from day one in our training of our students. So just in the educational aspects, I think this is going to be important. The research questions are interesting because... um, you know, typically in science and engineering, you you like to state a problem, solve it, and say, you know, I've solved the problem, or answer a question, and the answer is right or wrong. You know, mm-hmm. everything is very black and white in science, or we mm-hmm. like to think of it simplistically. Mm-hmm. But when we start talking about things like ethics and fairness and privacy, you throw in the policy, the regulation and legal aspects, it all starts becoming very fuzzy mm-hmm. and very nuanced. And it's not easy for you know, a, a scientist or an engineer to grapple nuanced questions, these questions that don't have necessarily a right or wrong answer, mm-hmm. um, or have two answers, both of which have rational arguments for. 
So I think we are, I, I do think that computer scientists and data scientists are uh, very much focused on trying to address some of these questions Mm -hmm. uh, squarely. So there's a huge effort right now in computer science and data science to understand what fairness means, because mm -hmm. a lot of these machine learning models are being used in contexts which um, can be to make uh, decisions that are biased or discriminatory. And mm -hmm. this is not good for society. Mm -hmm. And so we in, in data science and computer science want to make sure that the decision makers um, are using these techniques in a way that will not make biased decisions or that the models themselves are not biased, or more importantly, that the data that is used to train these models is not biased. But this is all ongoing research. We're mm -hmm. still grappling with um, you know, just formulating what the question is. Mm -hmm. So for instance, there's a talk that uh, a colleague of mine in computer science likes to give, which mm -hmm. is titled, 21 Notions of Fairness. Just <laughs> okay. uh, to show that even defining what fairness is, and you need to do that formally and mathematically before you can start doing um, automated computational checks, uh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So this is even step one is is very difficult. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there are papers out there in the literature that shows for any two different notions of fairness, each of which are perfectly rational mm -hmm. for you and me. For these two different notions of fairness for a given task, for a given system, it is impossible to satisfy. In other words, they one cannot build a system uh, that can satisfy two, these two different notions of fairness at the same time. They're in conflict. So even that is actually an interesting theoretical result. It goes to show that we're starting to have a better understanding of these nuanced properties like fairness. Yeah. Yeah. And then having 21 flavors of it definitely makes it very, very complicated. Yes, right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, you know, talking from uh, that perspective, so let's say if there are, you know, students uh, or people who are entering this field today, so they are, let's say, uh, coming out of college and thinking about their master's, how would you advise them to think about their careers, what stream should they choose? Should they study computer science more generically and then move to data science or they can move into data science? So, so how, how do you uh, suggest them to look uh, about their career? It's, it's a very good question. I think, you know, uh, data science really is not just computer science. It mm -hmm. really draws very, very strongly from probability and statistics. Yeah. Um, it is probability and statistics is a, an equal partner to data science uh, to in data science as computer science is. In other words, computer science and statistics really define the uh, underlying field of data science. And I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, my advice. The other aspect of data science that I think is unique to data science, as opposed to maybe any other discipline, is that. It's relevant, data science is always relevant to a particular domain of, of interest mm -hmm. because the data is coming from a domain. The questions that you want to answer with that data is coming from a domain. Yeah. So this is very unlike um, other fields. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, actually, the closest that comes to it is, of course, computer science, because computer science is also applicable to many domains. That was mm-hmm. one of the uh, papers that I'm famous for is computational thinking. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the arguments I used to make, or I still make, that computing, computational thinking can be applied to all disciplines. Mm-hmm. So what I would say to students is, if you major in computer science, um, you'll get a strong grounding in the computing theory and computing technology. Um, if you major or choose a master's in data science, you will not only get the techniques needed, the computational methods um, like machine learning and the statistical methods that are, are now, one can actually now scale up and compute over, but you will also um, be exposed to how these methods are applied in one or more domains. So this is quite unique and it's very inherently interdisciplinary. And I'm really speaking about not just the uh, interdisciplinary nature of data science in bringing computer science and statistics together, but the interdisciplinary nature of data science in terms of its applicability and use in a particular domain. So what you get is, if you say, go into a master's program in data science is, of course, you'll get the foundations of both computing and statistics, but you'll also get exposed to real-world data sets mm-hmm. and be challenged to work with the methods you learned to solve the problems of the domain at hand. Great, great. Uh, the other aspect which I wanted to talk specifically about is, uh, you know, the n- number of women in data science and technology in general. And, you know, data science needs more women to come into uh, into this domain. So uh, any uh, thoughts or suggestions which uh, you uh, would want to give to, uh, you know, the community or the aspiring women uh, uh, who want to come into this domain uh, about uh, how to think about the domain? Well, first of all, I I, I encourage uh, women to follow their passion if they're interested in yeah. any kind of math, science, engineering, or technology area. Um, they should feel that they have the ability, capability um, uh, to pursue their passion and pursue their interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't let others deter them from following their passion. Don't let others who might be around them discourage them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think society needs to support uh, women who are interested in uh, science, engineering, technology, um, and mathematical disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that this problem of uh, not there are not enough women in technology is a long-standing problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's existed since you know I was a student. We haven't really made that much progress. We were making some progress and. And then I think, you know, we actually lost some of our momentum. Mm -hmm. I don't have any answers. Uh, You know, when I was at the National Science Foundation, Mm -hmm. I funded a program at the order of $14 million a year to increase the participation of women, underrepresented minorities, and uh, persons with disabilities. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always a question of, you know, suppose I double that amount of money, would that make a difference? Mm -hmm. Um, And we see companies uh, putting a lot of money into trying to increase their uh, female technical employees. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it making a difference? I don't think it's not, it's not just about numbers. It's about culture. It's about 
society, uh, and that by that I mean starting in grade school, uh, your teachers, your principals, uh, your family, encouraging and supporting girls uh, with an interest in, in science, math, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many, uh, and then that you know, once uh, go through the pipeline, there are more. There seem to be more and more obstacles put in a person's way, a woman's way to to make to go the next step. And so I think, you know, women should not be deterred from all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I think it's the responsibility of society more generally to change, uh, change the culture. This is very difficult. This is not, it's easy to say. It's very easy to say. We've been saying it for years. But it takes effort by everyone, yeah. uh, men and women. <laughs> true, true, very true. Uh, Professor Wing, towards the end of the podcast, I usually ask a few rapid fire questions. So, you know, uh, I would ask you a question, and whatever comes to your mind uh, is the first answer. Just uh, you can just uh, uh, say that. Uh, okay. So, uh, you know, if you were not uh, studying or if you were not in data science field, what would you be doing now? <laughs> um, I'd probably be studying some kind of mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not very different from what you're doing. Uh, okay. I also saw that you you are trained in uh, you know martial arts. Uh, uh, I read it, I think, in one of your interviews. So you know, uh, any area of sports uh, where you think data science can make a make a huge difference? Any area of sports? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, sports analytics is a huge field. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you realize this, but many professional uh, sporting teams, from baseball to basketball to race car driving, you yeah. name it. They yeah. are absolutely using data science. They are yeah. collecting lots and lots of data, whether yeah. it's from the individuals participating or the teams, video cameras, you name it. Every sensor you can imagine is being used to record mm -hmm. the uh, activity and behavior of the professionals and studying not just how to improve the performance of the uh, individual athletes, but yeah. also to to check out the competition mm -hmm. so that you can uh, outgame your competitors. So data mm -hmm. analytics is already in professional sports. Any advice you would want to give to people who are part of our community? So basically data science practitioners, anything specifically you would want to tell them? I think one of the, uh, the piece of advice I would give is that the field moves so quickly. Data mm -hmm. science, um, there's enormous amounts of data. The methodologies uh, continue to be improved. So the, the best piece of advice I have is to continue to follow state-of-the-art progress in the field. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's very easy to get outdated quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. True. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Professor Wing, for that time. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the conversation. As I said, I'll, I'll probably read a more, a bit more about formal methods. Uh, it's, it definitely sounds interesting. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Thanks.